Welcome to Apologetic Simplified. I'm Leah. And I'm Andrew. This is a podcast for regular people with real questions about the Christian faith. Click that subscribe button or follow on your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and send us an email anytime at apologeticsimplified at gmail.com. Welcome back to Apologetic Simplified. We are so glad you so glad that you have tuned in. Leah needs to slow down if she wants to be able to talk, and apparently I'm talking in third person. So that's going to be an interesting start. <laughs> but we really are glad that you have tuned in today. We are continuing our series on world religions, and I am so excited to share our guests with you today as we are going to be talking about Judaism, and we're actually going to be talking about this for two weeks, which um, I, I think Judaism is a really important part of our Christian faith, and we're going to be talking about that as we go. But we have with us today Lynn Rosenbond. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Drama and Speech from Oklahoma Baptist University and a Master of Arts in Missiology. Lynn works for many years with Jews for Jesus, which is an organization facilitating Jewish life and community all over the world and shares with everyone they meet about the life-changing message that true peace can be found in Jesus. While working with Jews for Jesus, Lynn used her drama education when she co-founded the mobile evangelistic team called the New Jerusalem Players, which travels the world using drama to share the gospel. Lynn is actually the daughter of the Jews for Jesus founders, Moish and Seal Rosen, who were Jews who came to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Today and next week, we'll be learning about Judaism, what it means to be a Jewish Christian, and about the story of Moish and Seal from their daughter, Lynn. So, Lynn... Thank you so much for being here. How are you today? I'm just so grateful to be here today. Good, good. We're glad that you are. Uh, to get us started so we can get to know you a little bit, tell us a bit about your experience with the New Jerusalem Players. I had just graduated with my degree in speech and drama and had a real heart's desire to use that drama to tell people about the gospel in a way that would be not quite preaching. And there was a big movement, this was in the 70s, uh, here in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area of people uh, questioning what next. They, they had tried everything, left home um, to turn on and drop out. And so um, people were turning to the Lord. And so we wanted to use drama. It wasn't just me. I was um, joined by Susan Perlman, who I think you know from her um, serving on the board there, DTS. Uh, then there was Tuvia Zaretsky, who still is with our ministry in Los Angeles, and Jan Moskowitz, who has since gone on to be with the Lord. So the four of us had this joined vision of sharing Jesus in a way that was both ethnically acceptable to Jewish people and also readily available for people out on the street. So we did some putting our heads together and improvised some sketches that we brought to the streets. It used to be called guerrilla theater in those days. Oh, cool. So we did some of that, and we um, also had the opportunity to go into churches and uh, do some um, sermonic presentations, we called them. They were like okay. sermons in content, but very dramatic. So sure. we did that, um, and that took us touring around Northern California mostly. Then my husband and I got married, and so it was not feasible for me to travel with the team anymore. So I took a break. And after Alan and I were married for a year, we were asked to rejoin the team. And by then, 
the team was touring the whole country. Wow. So we came back, Alan and I both came back to be part of the New Jerusalem players. It's, I love that you guys use that creative outlet to share the gospel. The, the Sharing the gospel isn't just talking about Jesus. It's demonstrating it in creative ways. I think that's awesome. And obviously you were talking about Jesus, but in more than just words like we're doing today. I think that's amazing. We got to use our whole body. Yes, <laughs> yes. Use, and we got to use some humor, which I think is really important. If more preachers yes. use more humor, maybe they'd have more listeners. Yeah, I think so. I think humor is an important part of who we are as not just Christians, as humans. I think God made us people who do appreciate humor. So, yeah, I agree with that. Well, we are going to move on to talk about Judaism, but first we're going to have our first segment, Sayeth What? Sayeth What? For today's segments, we actually have a theme, and that theme is Florida. And today we have a very special Florida man of our own, really of mine. My dear husband, Phil, is here. Phil with a P, not Bill. He doesn't like it when you get that confused. Phil is here to join us because he is a Florida man. Not born and raised, just raised. Yeah, but raised long, for a long enough to be a Florida man. I will be always be a Florida man. Yes, indeed. So for say of what this week we have a Florida not man but bear. So there's this video on Huffington Post or Huff Post, whatever. It says, black bear, uh, Florida police use Krispy Kreme to lure black bear off city streets. So the video they have shows this bear being fed Krispy Kreme, which wasn't actually Krispy Kreme. Yeah, it was store brand donuts. I'm kind of okay with that because I feel like uh, Krispy Kremes are at a special level that I think they should be reserved for human consumption. I think so, too. We both had a youth pastor once who said that uh, when he gets to heaven, it's just going to be a bunch of Krispy Kreme. But anyway, that's not the point. So, Harry luring this bear with Krispy Kreme, but it seems based on the video that people were feeding this bear before this happened. Yeah, it's it's pretty common in Florida for people, especially um, non-native people, snowbirds, <coughs> but uh, <laughs> that don't really understand they don't really have any interaction with black bears or bears in general that they or animals in general for that matter that there's black bear in the neighborhood who likes trash cans and whatnot and they suddenly oh he's a wild bear he's hungry looking for food and they start feeding him well you get the same result like you get when you start feeding feral cats they just start coming and the bears don't really understand that what you're giving them is not a part of you and so they lose (laughs) their fear of humans and then next thing you know you've got a bear that's got to be relocated promptly or unfortunately probably put down well fortunately in this one it says that they have a humane trap so i'm sure that they were able to put this bear where you needed to be and as funny as it sounds donuts and like sweet treats and pastries and stuff is a very common bear uh, trap lure they use it a lot and a lot of hunters and stuff they use it quite frequently in their bear baits and stuff so well i I can't speak for anyone else but that, that would definitely work on me (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'd be right there with you. I, I I don't know that I'd fight the bear for the donuts, but <laughs> <laughs> that would be a little that's a little extreme. <laughs> yes, authorities catch bear and also person who really wanted donuts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just like glazed. Oh boy. Well, 
Uh, that's been Sayeth What. Sayeth What! And we are back with Lynn from Jews for Jesus, and today we're going to be covering a lot of ground. First, we want to talk about some of the major beliefs of Judaism. Lynn, would you mind uh, sharing with us about that? Boy, whole books have been written about that. Let I'm me sure. just say that being Jewish, um, we don't have a pope. So there's when I say Jews believe this or Jewish people believe that, please understand there's going to be someone who falls outside of that generality. Sure. Judaism is more of a spectrum. So um, most, for the longest time, the Jewish people that you would come in contact with, with would identify as just being Jewish, but we would call them Orthodox. Okay. And so an Orthodox Jewish person adheres to the 613 precepts of the Law of Moses, and um, that's really very, it's become very difficult to do outside of the land of Israel. So with the rise of scientific thinking in the 18th century, along came a movement called Reform Judaism. And so the Reform Jewish people realized that it's really hard to practice orthodoxy. What does it mean to be Jewish? And, and so they establish for them what it meant to be Jewish. If you go to an, or, an Orthodox synagogue, it will look a lot different than a Reformed temple. In a Reformed temple, you might feel like you're in a Presbyterian church. So um, they're, they're very different in how they work out and practice their faith. Um, in general, being Jewish is more about how we live than what we believe. You can be a Jewish person and subscribe to Buddhism. But if you're a Jewish person who subscribes to belief in Jesus, you're told you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus. So we'll mm. talk about that in a bit, I'm, I'm sure. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. Reform Judaism was a reaction to Orthodox Judaism. And then along comes the conservative movement, which, as you know, in culture, the pendulum swings. So it swung from Orthodoxy to Reform back to conservative. Mm -hmm. And conservative Jewish person is still trying to conserve some of the practices of being Jewish, some of the ideals of the halakha, which is the law, but realizing that outside of the land of Israel and outside of an agrarian culture, it's difficult to do that. So uh, a conservative Jewish person is still trying to keep the law um, doing it a little bit differently than an Orthodox Jewish person. An Orthodox Jewish person comprises about 10% of the Jewish people here in the United States. This is according to a Pew Research survey that was done in okay. 2013. So 10% of the um, Orthodox Jewish people, about 1% of those would be called Haredim, which you might have heard the term ultra-Orthodox most Haredim prefer to be called Haredim, um, but the, the Haredi people often interface with non-Jewish people or less observant Jewish people, and yet there's a division very strongly between what's proper for a woman and what's proper for a man. There's a much more rigid expectation on how people dress and how they're educated. The Haredim or the an Haredi person 
would probably not go to a secular movie or listen to secular music. Um, so they're very insulated from culture at large. And out of the 10% of Orthodox Jewish people, that would com compromise 1% perhaps. The other part of being very Orthodox um, and setting themselves apart from other Orthodox Jewish people would be the Hasidim. Uh, Hasid is, to me, a little bit like um, a Pennsylvania Dutch person because they might not want to use electric um, conveniences. They might, um, they follow, they follow what their rabbis did prior to World War II. They dress in a certain way that is not quite what you would say is fashionable. Both the the Haredim and the Hasidim would be wearing front curls. A more orthodox, a, a person, a man who's orthodox would take his curls off and stick them behind his ear. He has a head covering, but he might put a baseball cap over it. Mm. You wouldn't see that so much with with this one percent of of the Haredi or the Hasidim. God made rules about Jewish people dressing, and so they follow some rules that their rabbis have set forward. So that when you look at somebody, you know right away, oh, they're part of this sect, or mm. they're part of this believing system. So that's a little bit different from how things are in in the uh, world of, of of Christians. Although when I was growing up, there were ladies that I knew right away were nuns by how they dressed. So I think we're getting away from that a little bit. But do you want to hear more yeah. about the Pew research? Uh, yeah, I would love to hear more about that. Okay, so this was from the, the Pew research was a survey in 2013. 30% of the Jewish people in the United States that were interviewed would said that they didn't identify with any branch of Judaism, but they were Jewish. 1% were Reconstructionists, which is an offshoot of the uh, conservative movement. 18% were conservative. And this is way down from the 1970s when it was 41%. Then 35%, I think I've already mentioned that, were Reform. Um, and that's here in the United States. In Europe, there are 150 congregations of Reformed Jewish people. And out of those 150 congregations, 80, 80 congregations are in the United Kingdom. So wow. almost half of the Reformed Jewish people in Europe are there in the United Kingdom. And then 10%, as I mentioned, are Orthodox. And out of the Orthodox, about 1% are what some people would call ultra-Orthodox so that's what the Pew Research said. So it really irks me when there is such a spectrum of Judaism, and yet Jewish people tell me all the time, you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And I say, mm. well, wait a second. How did I become Jewish in the first place? Who gave me four Orthodox Jewish grandparents? God did. And if it's God who put me into that family and gave me the cultural upbringing that I had through my grandparents, then it seems to me that only God can say whether I'm Jewish or not. And I don't yeah. see that in scripture. In scripture, I see that I can continue to be the woman that God created me to be, but I'm supposed to have Jesus and be 
become more like Jesus every day. Well, if Jesus was born in Bethlehem and if Jesus walked the earth as an observant Jewish person, how could I stop being Jewish? That's really great. We've talked in previous episodes about how different worldviews and different religions have different things to say about the problem of the world, the solution to that problem, mankind, and God. I imagine that in many ways, Judaism and Christianity are similar with some of these beliefs, but what are some of the ways in which they differ? Where What are Judaism's views on each of these four items? You know, we hear this Judeo-Christian ethic all the time, and mm-hmm. really, there's there's not so much that we believe as as followers of Jesus that Jewish people would adhere to. For example, there is the understanding from our Bible that when Adam sinned, sin came into the world and everyone is a sinner. And interestingly enough, this comes from the Jewish Bible. And in in Isaiah 53, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Mm. But Jewish people today are not so familiar with the scriptures. Even an observant Jewish person who goes to synagogue every Saturday will be familiar with the first five books of the Bible, which we would call the Tanakh, the, the Torah, sorry, um, the, the, the five books of Moses, and then there are corollary readings from some of the prophets. prophets. It's, it's um, irksome to me that when we read the Haftorah portions, which is the corollary part to the Torah, Isaiah 53 is left out. Mm. Can you imagine? I don't have to wonder why. But anyway, Jewish people today do not subscribe to the idea that in Christianity is called original sin. Mm. The Jewish understanding is that every person born has two inclinations in their soul, the inclination to do good and the inclination to do evil. And so we battle with those two inclinations and we should continue to try to do good because every year on the Day of Atonement, God will weigh our good deeds against our bad deeds. And we hope that our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. So Hmm. this is a lot different from what I see in Hebrew scripture. Unfortunately, like other people in the world, most Jewish people are not going through life asking who is God and what must I do to please him. To me, that's the biggest difference theologically between being an adherent to Judaism and being an adherent to uh, to Christianity. A friend of mine, uh, one of my co-workers, was invited to speak to a youth group at a local temple. I said temple, so that right away clues you in that it was reform. And after he got done telling his testimony of being a Jewish man coming to faith in Jesus, the rabbi said, this man is a biblical Jew. He follows what's in the Bible. And she, this lady rabbi, understood that he was Jewish, but not the kind of Jewish person that she was. Mm. So I thought that was very, a very interesting comment that she said he was a biblical Jew, but not their kind of biblical Jew. That's, that's probably the understanding of, of sin. 
there's something else about being Jewish and the understanding of humankind. Most Jewish people who are strongly participating in their religion believe in something called tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. We believe that our good deeds will repair the tear in the world. As mm. a Jewish person who trusts Jesus, I do want the world to be repaired, but I know that only God himself can prepare, repair it. And that brings me to another way that Judaism is different from Christianity. Jewish people think that we Christians believe in a man who we promoted to be God. Those of us who know the scripture, the, um, the gospel of John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was not a man that we promoted to be God. Jesus was a God. Jesus is the God, the mm. creator of the universe, who demoted part of himself to become human. Mm. So yeah. um, that's the whole, the Greek thing for that, I think, is a novices, katabasis. You, you seminarians can probably talk more about that. But anyway, it's a misunderstanding. I don't think that many Jewish people understand what we think about who Jesus really is. I have a couple follow-up questions based on what you said. Towards the beginning, you mentioned that saying the word temple automatically means that it's reformed Jew, uh, Jewish temple. So what um, what are some terminology, ter some terminology, some terms <laughs> that people should be familiar with when um, navigating uh, Judaism? Like, like temple, like that for you, you know, that means reformed. What other kinds of terms might um, people who aren't so immersed in Jewish culture um, not be familiar with, but probably should know? One of the things in communicating our faith, we're allowed to say whatever words we would use. And if somebody that we're talking to doesn't understand what we're saying, we can ask them to explain. Conversely, when you're talking to a Jewish friend and you say, oh, tell me how your Passover went, you might say how your Passover Seder went. Seder means order, and that's what mm. the service is called. But if you okay. didn't know to say that and you were and you were asking a friend how, how, did, how did your celebration of Passover go, they would probably be delighted that you're interested. And they might volunteer. Well, we celebrated our Seder. And I think... Um, trying to come off as if you know everything about somebody else's religion might be off-putting. But coming to it with a humble spirit and asking genuine questions that leave room for you to learn something um, is a good idea because then when you are able to learn something about what their belief is, maybe they'll give you entree to also share what you believe. Yeah, and I think that's important. One Another thing about communicating with somebody from a different culture, because I'm Jewish, I'm going to say it this way. It's really not considered proper for a non-Jewish person to tell Jewish jokes. Mm, yeah. And that can be applied to any different culture. Yeah, probably yeah. so. So my other follow up question was you mentioned about weighing your good deeds and your bad deeds. 
do um, and I know you said there's so many different beliefs um, within Judaism. It's more about um, how you live than really the beliefs, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, what do Jewish people typically believe about salvation? Like, is there, they typically believe in some kind of afterlife? And if you do get there, is it because your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds? Curious. I'm going to do a end run around the middle um, and okay. start out with in the day of Jesus, you're probably yes. aware that there were different sects of Judaism. And we, we learned it this way. The, um, there were the Pharisees and there were the Sadducees and they were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the afterlife. <laughs> yes. That's how um, I remember it. <laughs> in addition to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there were the Essenes who lived a life apart. And there were the Zealots who the, the zealots really were more political and trying to see the overthrow of the Roman government. Mm -hmm. So those four streams of thought are somewhat present today. You have Jewish people who don't even believe that there is an afterlife. When you die, that's it. Uh, you live on through the memories of your family and the, those mm -hmm. who loved you. But there are those who do believe in, in the afterlife um, and in, in Jewish parlance it would be called the olam haba the world to come and so what does that look like well different people have different views the idea of being in abraham's bosom i think um, is very t often told you can see in jesus teaching some of this idea of what the common um, beliefs for the afterlife were in that time mm -hmm. as he tells the story of lazarus who, um, not the one that was raised from the dead, but the one who, in the um, parable. yeah, the parable of Lazarus. So, so a lot of Jewish people do believe in, in a, an afterlife there. It's not really told very much because we want to emphasize what life is like now. Um, as far as salvation, um, the only thing we can put our finger on is that we're supposed to be good people. We're supposed to, we're supposed to do good. And so if we do enough good, then God will welcome us into his kingdom. The problem with mm. that way of thinking, I, in my way of thinking is how do you know when you've done enough good? Oh my gosh, how do yeah. you know when your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? I am so relieved to know that when God looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ yeah. and he sees that Jesus atoned for me. Every year on the day of atonement, I don't have to worry about, am I praying hard enough? Am I fasting long enough? I know that my sins have already been forgiven. Now, to a person that's not a believer, that seems like too easy. It's easy believism. Because I said just a few minutes ago that being Jewish is more about how we live than it is about what we believe. So I think it's incumbent upon those of us who, who do trust Jesus for our salvation. It's incumbent upon us. And I know James would also agree with me, James, who wrote the book of James. You can't just be a hearer of the word. You have to be a doer of the word, too. Mm, Maybe he yeah. was Jewish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've kind of beat around the bush about 
um, why this ethnic identity and how you live is really more important than the beliefs, but I'd like to just hit it head on. Why is that more important? Why is that ethnic identity? Why is how you live, how you are living more important than the beliefs themselves? I haven't done a lot of reading on that question. I think a lot, a lot of people are beating around the bush about that. In my experience, I have to say it goes back to the book of Genesis. God took Abraham and he promised him many things. And one of the things that he promised Abraham was that as long as there was a sun, moon, and stars, there would be Jewish people. There's an innate part of me that wants to preserve my Jewish identity. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's God-given because God made a promise. And so I think the majority of Jewish people that you'll meet today, even if they're atheists, if they're agnostics, if they're Buddhists, it's still important to identify as being Jewish because God put that in us. Yeah. Yeah. That promise going all the way back to Genesis. That's great. We see in the New Testament passages, like there is no Jew or Greek in Galatians 3.28. So how would you handle a passage like that when thinking through this issue of ethnic identity? Well, I think we need to read that whole verse. Because it goes on to say there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah, Yeshua. Mm-hmm. Yeshua is the Jewish way to say Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I accepted Jesus and I didn't all of a sudden get blonde hair and blue eyes. It didn't make me Norwegian. Right. So I have to assume that it's okay for me to continue being a woman. It's okay for Mm -hmm. me to continue being a brunette with very curly hair and Mm -hmm. brown eyes. Um, it's, it's how I relate to Jesus that makes me one with others who are also relating to G to Jesus. We should be one in Jesus. Yeah, that's a great answer. These, uh, talks of unity in the New Testament aren't about becoming um, just copies of each other. Everyone's the same Christian robot. That's not the point. But in our diversity, we make up this beautifully complex, unified body of Christ. Right. And there's a warning there in the book of Galatians that I shouldn't put on anyone else those things that are important to me and to my identity and my culture. And um, in the book of Romans, Paul talks about if you feel like it's wrong to eat certain things, that's okay. You're, but um, if you feel like it's okay to eat certain things, that's okay. But you shouldn't eat those things in front of somebody who feels it's wrong to eat those things. Yes. So we can see that the overriding, the overriding issue is love. Mm-hmm. God is love. God loved the world and sent his son. And so if we relate to each other in the body of Messiah with love and we relate to those outside of the body of Messiah with love, then I think that's what God would want us to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to start talking about your parents and Jews for Jesus here in just a few moments. But before that, we're going to move into News Flash. News Flash! News Flash! 
For this week's news flash, we are continuing our theme of Florida, this time with uh, not just one article, but multiple articles and news stories. That was redundant. Relating to things that happen in Florida with Florida men. Our first one actually involves a rather heroic Florida man. The article is, Florida man fights off alligator that attacked his dog. Which, you know, that's... Way to go, dude. Good cause. So the uh, gentleman and his dog were out on a walk. Also, the dog's name is Loki. So for those familiar you know, with Thor, there might be a little more to the story. But anyway, he's with his dog, Loki. And an alligator was there and decided it wanted a snack of dog. So it uh, grabbed the dog, jumped out of the water, uh, grabbed the dog. So the owner uh, named uh, Trent, he grabbed the dog's collar, tried to pull him back, uh, decided that was not the best solution, ended up, quote, I got about knee-deep into the water and started pounding on the gator's head until he eventually let go. Yeah, this is why you don't walk your pets near waterfront ed- water edges. That's just because it does. after they get about six feet, they start getting really aggressive, and they see pretty much anything as a food source. They don't really have any natural enemies other than us. So, But you were saying before, when we were first reading this, that that's actually a really good way to get the gator to let go. Oh, uh, yeah, they have a soft spot about the size of a half dollar on the top of their head that if you can find it and hit it, it it's pretty much, it just, you're hitting their brain almost. But in that kind of situation, your best bet is to, well, one, try not to get yourself in that situation. But then, it, yeah, I mean, if you're going to do that kind of thing, I might have picked up something heavy if I could have found something. But, I mean, I yeah. feel like you didn't have that much time. The other thing you could probably done was probably try to roll it over, get it to know, get it. See? That sounds terrifying. But I don't know. <laughs> okay, now roll over. Roll over. What about you? Drop balance? it. <laughs> drop it. But I, I will say that, you know, uh, having grown up in Florida and uh, grown up around Florida Fish and Wildlife briefings in school right. and everything, they do advise you to stay away from water edges, especially as children, small pets and stuff, and to also never try to mess with one. Oh, yeah. At all. <laughs> Period. Well, that just shows that this guy's super heroic to fight off this crazy alligator. Yeah, I wonder if he needed a new pair of underwear after he got done with all of that. (laughs) Well, he is a former Army Staff Sergeant, so may have seen. Oh, maybe not. Maybe not. If he was a ranger in that area, he might have worked with the reptiles because there is a a ranger division that that works with reptiles in that area in in Florida. Why? Well, now we know. If we ever come face to face with an alligator, run. Or if they have something you love, bang on its head. Or make it roll over. (laughs) Drop it! (laughs) Our next story um, also involves an alligator, but it's a a different story. This Florida man, again, takes his five-foot pet alligator into this Florida key lime pie store. So this is in Cocoa Beach. Um, He has a pet alligator named Sweetie. Who he took into this pie shop. It's got a shirt on. Um, there's a video here, Philip. You can watch it. Phil wanted to be surprised. Look, he picks him up. Since he was just sitting out there, he probably had gone in to make sure that he could bring in his alligator. And he just walks in. He's got a t-shirt on. The alligator. The man's fully clothed. And uh, they just go in there and they make uh, great friends with everybody involved. Everyone loved his pet alligator. 
The only thing I have to say about this is Florida. It's <laughs> such a Florida. <laughs> it's like in Florida, like as long as you're wearing some semblance of clothing with, you know, like they say, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Most of the gas stations I grew up around literally said no shirt, no shoes, swimwear. Okay. Like that's. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about. No, I know that. But what I'm saying is if they let you do that, then an alligator is probably not that far of a stretch. So, like, is is the alligator like one where they like tape its mouth or is he just, you know, free? I think it's free. It doesn't have tape on its mouth. They're all picture. Yeah. No, No, he doesn't. It's just weird, though. Like He's carrying him like a baby. See, people with strange pets in Florida is why we have the python epidemic in the Everglades right now. And it's just like, because they get too big. And if this thing is five foot in about another year, it's going to get six foot. And that's when they get really territorial. I don't know. I wonder how old it is. It's really it's probably four or five years old. Oh, oh. Oh, okay, hold on. According to Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, pet alligators are allowed in Florida if a person obtains a Class II personal pet license, which requires not convictions of certain wildlife-related violations, and the person must demonstrate one year and 1,000 hours of substantial practical experience in the handling, husbandry, and care of alligators or other crocodilian species. Why? Why is this a thing? <laughs> They're Why just is this a so thing? cute, of course. I don't know. <sighs> but have you seen about the um, alligators at some zoos where there's someone whose job is to occasionally scrub the gator? <laughs> and, like, they love it. They see the person come up with the broom and then they just, like, float over. Yes, it's spotty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get my scrub and I'm going to get my facial. <laughs> I would not want to give an alligator a facial. I don't care how domesticated. Better count your fingers before and after. <laughs> what I do like about our two Florida man stories um, is that we have one heroic Florida man and one somewhat strange, but not like criminal Florida man. So there are more Florida men out there than just the criminal kinds. You know, my my brother actually had a, a alligator in his front yard, and he didn't know it. And when he came home from work one day, his <laughs> wife locked him out of the house because she was scared of it and wouldn't let him in the house. So he had to sit on the hood of his truck until Florida Fish and Game got there. <laughs> Florida's the best. All right. Well, Phil, thanks for joining us on our segments today. You're welcome. Letting us make fun of your kind, the Floridians. Yeah, we're, we're good for it. <laughs> All right, this is Van Newsflash. Newsflash! Newsflash! And we are back with Lynn from Jews for Jesus. Uh, and at this point, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about your parents, Moish and Seal. How did your parents come to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah? That's such a long question. Um, <laughs> and I'm always happy to talk about mom and dad. Uh, they married when they were 18. And um, I was born when they were 19. And at different points in their lives, they came. My mother actually called herself an atheist. My father decided he was agnostic. And so they weren't really thinking about God much. And then mother was active in high school in the choir. And they put on a Christmas program every year. And those Christmas carols really played a part in Mother's spiritual journey. She sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom mm. Captive Israel. Oh. And then she sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem, How Still We See Thee Lie. And when she sang those songs, 
she realized that Jesus didn't live and breathe in Rome, that he was from Israel, that he was Jewish. And she started getting curious. And at the same time, my father met up with a, a man who told him that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. My father decided that there must be something wrong with him because everybody knows Jews don't believe in Jesus and it was making sense. And so he just put it out of his mind. So years later, that man and his wife prayed for my parents every time they sat down to a meal, uh. Orville and Juanita Freestone. They moved away out of the Denver area and asked a woman named Hannah Wago to be praying for my parents. Uh, Hannah um, worked with the American Board of Missions to the Jews, and she paid a call on my mother at just the perfect time. Mom mm -hmm. had asked cousin Dorothy to get her a copy of the Bible. She said, Dorothy, get me a copy of the Bible, not just the Jewish part, but the whole part. So my mother had read the scriptures, and she read in the Gospels about this Jewish tribe of people and their rabbi Jesus, and that Jesus was the living God. And so she was thinking, okay, Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now what do I do? And about that time, Hannah Wago showed up. And Hannah was able to help mother pray to make Jesus her Messiah. Well, let's get back to dad. He had never given himself the permission to even consider whether it might be true. Mm. And so when mother came to faith, he was not very pleased. And um, he searched out the rabbi and the rabbi could not answer dad's questions effectively. And um, dad went to my grandfather and said, I don't know what to do. Should I divorce my wife? She believes in Jesus now. And, and mm -hmm. my grandfather said, no, don't divorce her. She's a wonderful wife. She's a good mother. Um, and so my father finally decided what he needed to do was read the scripture for himself to show that mother was wrong. Mm. Mother professed Jesus as her Messiah on Easter Sunday. Oh my gosh. Dad, I'm getting chills. That's so cool. <laughs> Dad took the Bible, started to read it. And when he, when he finished reading the scripture, the newer Testament, he decided my mom was right. He, mm. Saturday night, they went to bed and he said, you know, Seal, I think I have to apologize to you because I think you're right. I think Jesus is the Messiah. Now what do I do? So my mom said, well, what you should do is um, go and publicly tell people um, in a meeting that, that that's what you believe. And dad said, well, tomorrow's Sunday. Why don't I go with you to church? So Hannah and mother and dad went to church and it was Pentecost Sunday. And my dad made a profession to follow Jesus at that time. So wow. there, there was about a month between when mom was praying so hard for dad. And mom had Hannah praying for dad. And, mm -hmm. and Orville and Juanita had moved away. And they were still praying for dad. And the people wow. at the church were praying for dad. So, you know, God's prayers for the unbelieving are answered. God is willing that none should perish. The, but the hang-up is our will. Where is our will in, in that? And, and God is not going to countermand 
the way that he designed us to have our own free will. Mm. So I'm really grateful for those people praying for my parents. And um, and as they say, the rest is history. If you want to read that history, my younger sister, Ruth, has written my father's biography. And it's the story of how Jews for Jesus got started. It's um, called to controversy. And mm. um, it's it's published. Um, and if you're interested, you can find out more about the story and I love the pictures of our family in there yeah I'll post that in the show notes as well so that people can can buy that and read it as well yeah I can't even remember the full name of the book which is like called to controversy the un uh the unorthodox telling of how Moish Rosen came to Jews for came to believe Jesus and the founding of Jews for Jesus or something like that. But wow, the book is in the other room. I'll send it's it. Okay. To you. Send <laughs> you, I'll send you the information. Okay, Sorry. sure. That'd be great. So you were uh, just talking about it a little bit with the book, but uh, could you tell us now a little bit about your parents' journey to found Jews for Jesus? So when dad came to faith, he said, if more Jewish people could hear this in a way that was more Jewish, then they would see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And dad realized that before he tried to tell others, he better be sure that he understood more of the Bible. So he wanted to go away to Bible college. So I like to say, well, there I was not quite three years old and I went off to Bible college, but actually I lived in the married people's housing. Dad went to Bible college and he um, and he learned how to use all the proper terminology and he learned where different things were in scripture and um, after he graduated he became um, very much a part of the American Board of Missions to the Jews, the same the same group that had sent Hannah Wago who first discipled mother and dad. So we were part of the, we called it the mission. We were part of American Board of Missions to the Jews and we served in Los Angeles. And then um, dad moved back and he served in New York and um, he got a bug. (laughs) He wanted to share Jesus with those in the cultural revolution. Back in the seventies, I think I already mentioned that people were dropping out, turning on and tuning in, trying to find out what the meaning of life was. And dad really Mm. wanted to minister to those people. But by that point in his career, he was on the sixth floor of a Manhattan building and he didn't have as much connection with people as, as he did with other missionaries. And so he put in for transfer and we moved to San Francisco. And um, while we were there, um, he had a break with the mission agency, which is a good mission agency, and they had a lot of wonderful things. But Dad wanted to do things the way that um, he felt was a little bit more modern, um, a little bit more different. And so they parted companies. And still there were a number of younger people, some of them my age, some of them a little bit older, who who went from following one guru to following um, Jesus, and because my father was able to facilitate that, they they gathered around Dad, and they all had the same mm. desire to see more people hear about Jesus in a Jewish way. 
And so there we were. Um, I was home from college in the summers and for winter break, handing out gospel tracts and um, doing some street preaching and street guerrilla theater. Well, one day um, in the summer, I was at summer school at San Francisco State College. Now it's San Francisco State University. Dad drove me there from Marin County. And rather than go home and come back and pick me up, he stayed on campus and and he put up posters. And these posters had slogans. One of the slogans was, Jesus made me kosher. Kosher means clean in the sight of God. But another poster said, Jews for Jesus. So dad was putting up these posters around campus and a a young man came up to him and said, "Uh, where did the Jews for Jesus meet? And my dad said, Jews for Jesus? That's a slogan. There are no Jews for Jesus. I'm the Jew for Jesus. (laughs) So the man said, yeah, right, sure. And he went off and he wrote an article for the school newspaper. There's a group on campus so secret that they won't even tell me where they meet. And the name of the group is Jews for Jesus. And what's really interesting is that somebody from Time Magazine saw that school newspaper article and published an article in Time Magazine calling about this movement in San Francisco of Jews for Jesus. Oh, my goodness. That's how we got our name. That Um, is a great story. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. So we had several listeners submit questions when we mentioned that we were having a Jewish Christian come on the podcast. And unfortunately, we aren't going to be able to ask them all. So if you submitted a question and we don't get to it today, or we have one today and several for the uh, next week, then I apologize. But thank you so much for all your questions. They were really interesting. So my first question, uh, listener submitted question, our only one for today, um, is... Well, the way they originally phrased it was, what was the biggest thing that convinced you of Jesus's deity? So I understand from previous conversations that you came to believe in Jesus, much like I did in Sunday school, a very young age. Um, And so if you want to answer that for yourself, you're welcome to. But then also, I'm going to extend this question to what was the biggest thing that convinced your parents of Jesus's deity? Because it was a bigger change for mom and dad, I probably should answer for them. Okay. Um, and let me just say, it wasn't a thing. I believe it was the Holy Spirit, God himself, because as mom and dad read the Gospel of John, they had without a doubt the understanding that in order for Jesus to make atonement for sins, he had to be eternal. He had to be God incarnate. And mm-hmm. this whole concept of God incarnate is something that's very difficult for all of us to explain or understand. But my mom and dad, from the beginning, when they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, they knew that Jesus had to be God. If you get back to what we in seminary call the Proto-Evangelium, in Genesis chapter 3, you see right there that the Messiah is going to be not a typical person. The Messiah is the seed of a woman. And the seed of a woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Mm-hmm. And so that's a clue when you read that, because even in, in um, biblical Hebrew, you don't talk about the seed of a woman. It's the seed of a man. So, yeah, the whole idea of the virgin birth is something that's very foreign to Judaism. But if you can believe 
Genesis 1, which we call um, Bereshit, in the beginning God created. If you can believe that, then you're reading through the rest of scripture and you get to this thing about, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Then you know that it's not unusual. If God could make a young woman in, in the Hebrew, in, in that verse, it says a young woman will conceive and bear a son. And then the interesting, I'm sorry, I'm digressing. I know, but it's okay. I have to talk about this. <laughs> it's great. In the original Hebrew, the word that's used there is Alma, which means a young woman. But when the scholars sat down to put the Bible into Greek, they used the word Parthenos, which can only mean a virgin. So the original Jewish writers of the colloquial Septuagint, which was what they spoke, when they wrote that, they knew it was supposed to be a virgin. It was just until years later, Rashi came along and he wrote the um, polemic against how Alma, it should say uh, Betula, which is the Hebrew word for virgin. But Alma is used other places in scripture to also mean a virgin. It's, it's like if you meet a seven-year-old girl, you don't, you wouldn't say, oh, Natalie, the virgin, you know, she's seven years old. Of course she's a virgin. So, yeah. um, but anyway, I know I digressed here and now you have to bring that's me back okay. to where we were. No, no, that's great. Um, I mean, that's all related to Jesus's deity. And that's one of the things we were excited about with having you on this podcast is your Jewish perspective on the scriptures. It's just, it's different <laughs> than the way that we typically approach scripture um, as people raised in uh, United Methodism. So I love this. No, this is, it was a great digression. It was very good. And that's all the time that we have for today. But to all of our listeners, we'd uh, encourage you to come back next week as we continue this conversation in part two. So we'll see you next week. God bless. This has been Apologetic Simplified. To learn more, go to www.apologeticsimplified.com. To support this podcast, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app, or you can give at www.patreon.com slash apologeticsimplified. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.